Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hello, this is Alan Montesilio, Senior Editor of The Bay. Our host, Erica Cruz Guevara, is out this week. And when she is, you usually hear me on the mic filling in. For the next couple of episodes, we're going to have a new guest host. And I'm excited to introduce him briefly here on the mic before we get going today. Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Hello, Guy. Hey, Alan. So, Guy, you're a frequent guest and listener of the podcast. Can you tell me a little... Uh, a little bit more about what you usually cover as a journalist here in the Bay Area. Yeah, so as part of our politics and government team, I'm covering a mix of state and local politics. So some of what's happening at the Capitol, Senate, Assembly elections, but a lot of Bay Area politics, what's happening on local ballots, in county government, city government. And that's part of why I'm a huge fan of this podcast. There's just so much interesting stuff happening in our nine-county region. So tell me a bit more about your background, Guy. I know you've been in the Bay for a long time. I know you've moved around a bit within the region. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so I have, you know, lots of family roots uh, in the Bay Area. I have lived in San Francisco for for most of the last decade, but now I'm in the South Bay. recently moved down here and really uh, excited about diving in on a lot of the issues around San Jose and Santa Clara County. Um, And Thought I would be coming down to a really mild winter, but <laughs> that got blown up immediately. It is really co- has been really cold down here uh, this winter, as you've experienced in San Francisco. So maybe next year. Yeah. What happened to the microclimate? Okay. So this is not a sports podcast, but I know you are a big Warriors fan. In one word, describe how you're feeling about the Golden State Warriors right now. Um, trepidatious. That's a great word. That's a real NPR word, too. (laughs) Well, Guy, we're excited to have you on the team this week and hear you on the podcast. Uh, Thanks again for hosting. Thanks, Alan. I'm Guy Marzarati, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Okay, this is not going to shock you. There's not enough housing in the Bay Area for everyone who needs it. We see it every day, people living on the street, others struggling to pay rent or find homes or even leaving. And we can also see it in the housing element process. It happens every eight years. The state government sets a goal for the amount of housing that needs to get built and then requires every city and county in California to plan for their fair share. Now, for a long time, local governments have not taken housing elements too seriously. But now that could actually be changing. The state is telling cities that they have to make real plans to build a lot more housing in their communities. The state is threatening steep consequences for cities that don't 
Submit plans, get them adopted by the deadline. Today, why housing hashtag goals are getting real for the Bay Area and how one city has a plan to make it work. So, Oddity, every city and county in the Bay Area has to submit these plans to pave the way for more housing. Why did you choose to focus your reporting uh, on Alameda? Alameda is really interesting. Aditi Bunlamudi is a housing reporter for KQED. They were the first ones to get their plan approved by the state and adopted way before any other city in the Bay Area did. And through the course of your reporting there, you traveled around the island, around the city. What does housing look like in Alameda? I would almost say that it's a tale of two neighborhoods. The eastern side of the city that is closer to Oakland, you know, the southern part of the island, that's home to, like, these beautiful Victorians. They're old and they're huge and they have, like, fainting rooms. There's a lot of single-family homes around that area. On the other side, on the eastern side of Alameda, that's closer to the bay, a huge chunk of it is a wildlife reserve. And the other part of it is like an abandoned or or mostly abandoned naval base. And there, there's a little bit of housing, but it's pretty sparse. I was worried it was going to be late because the ice was on the windshield. I was like, oh no, I'm never going to get out of here. I drove around the city with city planner Andrew Thomas and former city council member John Knox White. And Andrew Thomas talked a lot about what the city looks like and why it looks that way. Asked ourselves this question, are, are we being equitable? And the answer was no, we're not being equitable because we're using land use regulations in a way that keeps certain kinds of people out of certain kinds of neighborhoods. Alameda's naval base was built around World War II. And there was this huge influx of population, like so many people came for jobs. And because of that, the government built a bunch of housing. In that time, there were some of these beautiful Victorians that were torn down. Residents at the time were so worried about this, these Victorians just totally disappearing from their city that they passed a charter amendment. The ballot measure was, it was very, very simple. It was really just a couple sentences. There shall be no multifamily housing built anymore in this city forever. And that means that the city is zoned for a lot of single-family homes. Single-family zoning is tied to our affordability crisis, the reason why housing is so expensive in the Bay Area, and also how racially segregated the, the Bay Area has been. That kind of zoning has really pushed out families of color. In 2020, Alameda put on its ballot to override that charter amendment to say, we're actually going to build multifamily housing and we're going to get rid of this ban in our charter amendment. And the residents spoke up and said that they didn't want to overturn it, that they wanted to keep this ban on building multifamily homes. I'm wondering if you can take us through the nuts and bolts of the process that Alameda went through. I mean, these plans right now are on paper, but ultimately they could reshape a lot of the neighborhoods that you're talking about. So I imagine there are a lot of residents who might not be looking forward to change. 
People are really, really concerned. The process that Alameda went through to get this whole thing done took a really, really long time. It took years of city council meetings, of public comment meetings where people were angry and yelling things at the city planners. And I mean, it was really, really tense because people don't want to see their neighborhoods change. Housing is a really personal issue. It's the whole package. It's not super dense. There are places to park. There are parks to go to. It's green. I spoke a lot about this with Paul Foreman, who is a resident of Alameda. He lives in a condo on the west side of Alameda. And then I moved here in 1990, and I went to work just part, well, full-time, actually, for uh, uh, Community Alliance for Special Education. He lives right across the street from this beautiful Victorian, and he is happy with where he is, and he really doesn't want to see that change. And now the city's just going to come along and just completely change the character or, or do things that will put at risk the character of the neighborhood. And I hate to use the word character because, oh, that's racist. And this is a very diverse community. It, I mean, people want to accuse me of being a, a NIMBY or whatever. I, I, I'm not a NIMBY. <laughs> so given all that, how did Alameda get this housing element to the finish line before any other city in the Bay? What Alameda had going for it, for it to get this plan across the finish line, is that its city council was pretty supportive of getting this housing plan approved and seeing housing get built eventually. The housing crisis is now something that you can't really deny is happening. And, you know, Alameda is not immune to that. Um, There are teachers and firefighters and people who work in the restaurants and the bookstores, um, small business owners that can no longer afford to stay in that city. And the city is getting affected by it. So Alameda is different from other cities in that it has a lot of land that is sort of at the discretion of the public. It's like owned by the city. The entire part of Alameda Point where they're going to build almost, you know, 1,500 housing units, um, that's owned by the city. So that's in its favor. Ultimately, it's going to be the residents of Alameda who will be most affected by this housing element plan. I'm curious, when you talk to residents on the island, how they felt about maybe, you know, a shifting political appetite around housing. You know, I spoke with a lot of teachers, actually, who were struggling to find housing or struggling to stay in the housing that they were in. I was actually born in Alameda and raised here. I went to Alameda Unified growing up, then went away to college, got my teaching credential and stuff. You know, I spoke with Chris Lonsdale. He is a fourth and fifth grade teacher in, in Alameda. You know, when growing up, it was not unheard of to be able to afford a house there. But now it's impossible to get a house there. Knowing what they paid for it back in the mid 80s kind of thing. And now looking at it where it was like a working class house back in the 80s. And now you need like a tech executive salary to be able to afford. He is getting to a point in his life where he doesn't want to live with roommates anymore. He's tired of living with his parents, who he lives with now, because that's the only affordable housing that he can find. The amount of housing built over my lifetime in Alameda is pretty much like non-existent, it seems like. And he feels like if he can't find housing in Alameda, the place that he's grown up, the place where his family lives, where he knows everyone, he's going to have to move away. And that's really, really sad for him. 
I had looked at moving out of state and other places, but the amount of money you lose, the connections that you're losing, the rebuilding your whole life basically in another place from scratch. Um, at this point in my life, I'm not really trying to do that kind of thing. Coming up, the city of Alameda's housing plans and how the state is trying to force the rest of the Bay to build more housing too. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. So Alameda was the first city in the Bay Area to get their housing plan approved by the state. What's actually in this plan and kind of what development are city leaders envisioning over the course of the next 10 years? I actually have a chart that shows me exactly where the sites are. Basically, Alameda was tasked by the state to make way or zone for 5,353 units. And those units have to be spread all over the city. They can't really be concentrated to one area or another area. Alameda's housing element or Alameda's like housing plan includes a lot of mixed income housing. In the end, when they did all the you know rezoning and planning, they ended up making way for more than 5,000 units. They made way for 6,424 units total. We know where cities have really missed the mark in the past is with goals around building affordable housing. So how much housing in Alameda's plan is affordable? Out of those 6,400 units... 3,591 of them would be affordable from very low to moderate income levels. So about half of them would be considered affordable. So that's the city of Alameda. They've gotten their housing plan into the state. They've gotten it approved. What's happening around the rest of the Bay Area? Because this process is still going. The deadline to get the plans approved by the state and adopted was January 31st. Two cities met that deadline, Alameda and San Francisco. There have been a few other cities that have gotten it approved, but just like a couple, not a whole lot. 
there is a lot of talk about the consequences that are going to come and what is going to happen with all these cities that have not planned accordingly. And these cities and counties should not have been surprised by this homework because this process does happen every eight years. But it does feel like this time around, it's a little bit more dramatic. Give us maybe some of the reasons and some of the new forces that are involved in this process this time around. Governor Newsom came into office and he was like, people are leaving California because it's too expensive to live here. We got to do something about it. So what he did was introduce a whole host of consequences for what cities will face if they don't follow the law. The state is saying we are going to either file lawsuits against you. We're going to fine you. We're going to take away funding for transportation and, uh, you know, affordable housing projects. And there's also this thing called the builder's remedy. It's a really interesting tool that just like really throws a wrench in the system that has been created. This builder's remedy, what is it? And I guess why do local governments seem to be so fearful of it in this process? So basically, the builder's remedy says if a city is not compliant with state housing law, if it hasn't zoned properly for housing, then a developer can go forward, submit a project. And if it meets certain affordability requirements, it has to get approved. A city can't deny it. In the past, a developer will want to build something. So they'll go forward to the city council and they'll say, hey, you know, I'd like to build this big housing development. What do you think? Here's all the parameters. And a city could reject it by saying, oh, it's too small. It's too big. It's not in keeping with the, you know, character of our community. And those would all be valid reasons for them to turn it down. But with the builder's remedy, they cannot do that anymore. And this is a really scary thing to people who want to have a lot of say over what their neighborhoods look like. Wow. So you have this mechanism where basically developers can take a holiday from zoning law. How likely, though, is it in your conversations with developers that they will actually pursue this process around the Bay Area? It's super likely. (laughs) We've already seen one Builder's Remedy project. Technically, it's two Builder's Remedy projects submitted by one developer in Los Altos Hills. January 31st was the deadline. And on that day, on that evening of January 31st, there was a party that developers held in San Francisco where they talked about all these different plans that they would want to submit under the Builder's Remedy. So going forward, the state still has this big goal of the amount of units that need to be built to keep up with our state's population. Cities and counties are tasked with, you know, finding a way to make room for that amount of housing in their communities. What happens if these cities and counties get their act together, submit their housing roadmaps? What happens then? So that's like a big question, right? Because if the cities get their act together and they adopt plans, that's great. But now the housing needs to get built and cities cannot build the housing themselves. They're reliant on developers to do those projects. And for developers to do those projects, they have to pencil out. They have to make financial sense. Alameda Point, for example, they have this big, ambitious goal of building like 1,500 housing units. Alameda has been trying to redevelop Alameda Point for years. And the developer has come back and said, it's too expensive. It's too expensive. We need to cut this. We need to cut that. These are the very realistic market forces that are at play. You know, the hard work of getting the plan approved 
was difficult, but they achieved it. Now they have to find out how to actually build it. And that is a question that we don't actually have an answer to yet. All right, Oddity, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was KQED housing reporter Aditi Bunlamudi. This episode was cut down and edited by producer Maria Esquinka. Senior editor Alan Montecilio scored it and added the tape. Our intern is Jalen Herdman. The Bay is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Erica Cruz Guevara. Have a good one. Well, Guy, we're excited to have you on the team this week and hear you on the podcast. Uh, thanks again for hosting. Thanks, Alan. Okay. I know some of those that, some of that stuff was a little awkward, but I'll, I'll chop it down. And people don't want to hear too much of that at the beginning, but it's also better than like a just cold. Like, right. oh. it, gives, it gives a clear signal for all the ECG fans. Tur- skip next podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so they know. Well, warn them early. <laughs> they know what's happening. They know what's happening. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.